All right, I've heard. I was uh, gone last week, but watched uh, January 8th. I was here. And uh, let me encourage you, four weeks into the new year, you're going to be tempted to go back to the way things were before the new year. All right, so uh, the excitement of Sunday school and you doing the notes probably is starting to wear off, and now it's becoming a little harder. Now it's becoming, oh, but I really want to go back to the way my life was before I had more free time or more uh, me time or whatever. So let me encourage you to stay, stay disciplined. It will be worth it uh, if your life is changed and altered uh, with spending more time in the Word. If your family uh, time uh, around the Word has changed, so let me encourage you to keep doing that. Also, let me encourage you to write your name on the front of your notebook. I told my children this uh, because all the notebooks look alike. Uh, Unlike Bibles, where you might have a unique-looking Bible, all these notebooks look alike, so write your name on the front so in case you forget it here, we can get it back to you. Uh, And also, let me encourage you to write your name in the front of your Bible, too. We have several Bibles that are unclaimed and unnamed, so if you write your name in the front of it, we can get your Bible back to you as well. All right, Matthew 11. Sovereign King Jesus. Uh, There are many rulers that have claimed sovereignty, but to be a sovereign, you have to control everything, everyone, all the time. And there's no human on earth that (laughs) can, uh, ever has, or ever will be able to uh, do this. Only God can do this. And so Jesus is the sovereign. And as we have looked in Matthew, the Jewish people are have missed Jesus for the most part. The majority of Jewish people today have missed Jesus, and Matthew and Hebrews are the two books of the New Testament that I would, if you have a friendship with someone who is Jewish, uh, to try to study this, read this with them, uh, because of it is written, written to them in particular, obviously Hebrews, but Matthew we know as written to, to the Hebrews as well. So we're looking at 11 to 16. Uh, in our Bibles, and that's six chapters, and if you read these chapters, they are long, so we can't look at every verse, and I will try to be done uh, in about 25 minutes so that we can get to our questions. But I have a rough outline here. All right, I don't think I have control. You guys controlling it? Am I controlling it? Okay. All right, so Matthew 11 to 13, King Jesus, sovereign king, clarifies. So if there is some confusion around Jesus being the sovereign, he is going to have to clarify that with um, who he is and what he gives. As Jesus starts claiming in his ministry that he is You'll hear him say many times, the Son of Man, which is only one time in in Daniel 7, a reference to the Messiah. But he is obviously the Messiah and is gradually sharing this truth with the people, his audiences, uh, large and small crowds, uh, a few people, uh, many people at once, and, and what he gives. So chapter 11 Uh, Jesus makes clear to John that he is fulfilling messianic prophecies. You're with me in Matthew 11, and John has um, 
John the Baptist, if you were in prison, uh, it would not be a pleasant place at all. Think of dungeon, think of rats running around, think of darkness, think of uh, people around you that may not even, you may not be able to see because of, of how dim it is dark um, in there. And so John has been in prison. We don't know how long he's been in prison, but probably not just a few days, a week, and maybe, maybe a year or so. And when John, uh, verse 2, Jesus is teaching and preaching um, after he instructed the disciples, verse 2 of chapter 11, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, the Christ, that's the Messiah, he sent word by his disciples, John still had people who were following him, and uh, they uh, check on him as he's in prison, and he sends his disciples and says to Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Now, we're not sure exactly why he says this, but he is probably just discouraged and wondering how long is he going to stay in prison. He knows why he is on earth. He has told people, I am not the Christ. I'm just the one who's coming to prepare the way for the Christ. When he baptizes Jesus, he sees the Holy Spirit come down. John knows that Jesus is the one. Okay, it is very clear, and they're cousins, and they know each other, uh, and John knows who he is and uh, knows who Jesus is, but probably discouragement here is setting in. And so what does Jesus do to encourage John? And I think Luke's account records more for us here, but verse uh, 4, Jesus answered them, that's the disciples of John, go tell John what you hear and see. Now, I think Luke records that at that very moment, Jesus goes out with John's disciples and says, hey, I want you to show you guys something, and he heals people, opens the eyes of the blind. And so he performs miracles to strengthen the disciples of John so they can go back and tell John. This is what Jesus does for his friend. And this happened instantly. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, and lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So it gives him truth, gives him all that John the Baptist uh, told people that the Messiah would do, Jesus does, and Jesus connects John's followers to truth from the Old Testament, from reality that he is showing his sovereignty over all kinds of sickness, even over death, and he is fulfilling the Old Testament, and he says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So the prophecies of Isaiah 29 and Isaiah 35 uh, are fulfilled in verses uh, 2 to 6 here in chapter 11. And John's follow, John the Baptist knew these prophecies. John's followers may or may not have known them, but when Jesus quotes this to them, he's referring back to Isaiah 29 and Isaiah 35. And John would, would hear this in prison and say, okay, yeah, <laughs> he is the one. He is doing exactly what the prophecies, what I have preached about him, he's doing exactly that and confirming to John that Jesus clarifying who Jesus really is. They aren't supposed to look for another. Then he helps his disciples in in Matthew 11 to see how John fits into the Messianic prophecies, and he also refers to Malachi 3 and 4 uh, in in the next uh, section here. So verse 7, and as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. So the crowds know who John is. He didn't 
do all of his baptizing in, in private. It was a very public ministry. Everybody knew John. They considered him to be a prophet. We'll see that uh, a little bit later. Uh, so what did the, Jesus is talking to the crowds, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind, like someone who is, <laughs> who is uh, really unstable. Oh, that would be the opposite of what John was like, okay? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing, like a guy who's well-dressed. <laughs> no one was imitating John in, in their attire because we know what he, he dressed like. No, that's not who he went out to see. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you, did you go out to see? And Jesus is drawing the crowd to think, what caused us to go out to see John? It wasn't his clothing and it wasn't uh, anything that the world says that you should, he wasn't flashy at all. Okay, what did you go out to see? A prophet. And they would say yes, okay, because and later they, the crowds considered John to be a prophet. Yes, I tell you, and Jesus confirms, John is a prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Okay, so whenever Jesus says to the crowds, more than a prophet, their ears are like, what? How can you be more than a prophet? Because there are specific prophets that are more than a prophet, and Jesus is going to actually be one of those as well. Um, that uh, Acts 3 tells us about. But anyway, so back here to John the Baptist. More than a prophet, verse 10. This is he of whom it is written. So this specific prophet has a prophecy about him. When he comes, behold, I will send my messengers before your face who, who will prepare your way before you. When John comes, this is the precise prophecy that this man fulfills. He is the one who is right before the Messiah. And he's preparing the way before the Messiah. Verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And that would, I almost had a question along those lines, but it was a little too complicated, I think. So how to, how to be least in the kingdom of heaven Verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets uh, and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Today, Orthodox Jewish people, many Jewish people that celebrate Passover have an empty seat at their table for Elijah to come, and an empty place setting, and that is for Elijah and Jesus is saying, you're looking for Elijah because the Messiah is going to come after Elijah. And let me tell you, Elijah has come. Now, if you looked at the ministry of John the Baptist and you looked at the ministry of Elijah, they would look the same. They dressed the same. They talked the same. They went after ungodly kings the same. And Malachi 3.1 tells us that Elijah has to come before the Messiah. And now Jesus is saying, look at who, what he's clarifying here for the crowds, okay? John the Baptist came, fulfilled specific prophecies. He was the one right before the Messiah. And you're looking for Elijah to fulfill Malachi 3.1, and John the Baptist fulfilled that. He is greater than a prophet. So Jesus is clarifying who Jesus is. In relation to John the Baptist, he is the Messiah. And John's fulfilling the prophecy, uh, prophecies about who John was. Malachi 
and Malachi 4-5 both talk about a prophet coming and Elijah by name. And what Jesus says here, uh, look at uh, verse, we're back in verse 14. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, everyone would say, yes, I have ears to hear. But <laughs> what Jesus is saying is, do you understand what I'm saying? Are you using your ears to influence your heart, to, to put all the pieces together to say, yes, John the Baptist did come. Yes, he does fulfill the Elijah prophecy. So if, if, that, if those pieces of the puzzle are right, then Jesus has to be the Messiah. He has to be. There's no other way to interpret this. There's no other way. He, Jesus is clarifying to the crowds who he is and, and pointing them back to the Old Testament, pointing them to John, who they knew to be a prophet. And the response that Jesus is looking for is humble hearing. Okay, we, you studied uh, verses 16 to 24, so we're going to I'll just give you a summary of that. He is the prophet. Jesus is the prophet who gives warning, and his warning is to repent. Verses 25 to 30, you also did study on that, so we'll answer that in a minute. But he is the loving, gentle helper. This is the Messiah, the loving, gentle helper who is giving rest, so we come to him. Now, chapter 12, verses 1 to 13, Jesus is... The Lord of the Sabbath. The, um, they're picking uh, grain and trying to... Um, the Pharisees have intensified the law. And Jesus said, you, you got the law wrong. You got your traditions wrong. And then he says this statement in verse 8, For the Son of Man is Lord, or he's over the Sabbath. And when he says he is over the Sabbath, where all the Pharisees... And all of their followers to put yourself under the Sabbath, put yourself under the Sabbath, put yourself under the Sabbath. And Jesus says, I am Lord over the Sabbath. They're like, what? You can tell people that they don't have to obey our laws of the Sabbath? Who gives you that right? Well, he's the king. And so he clarifies the intent of the Sabbath. Uh, verses 9 and following, there's a healing and the teaching there. Um, you answered a question about what's Jesus trying to teach his followers and his enemies, so I'll let, uh, we'll answer that uh, in a few minutes. God's chosen servant in verses 15 uh, and following. Jesus is the just, victorious, Gentile Savior as well, not just the Jewish Savior. And uh, the prophecy here in uh, verses 18 to 21 talk about in the, the Gentiles are going to hope. And so the, the Messiah is going to be Jewish, but he's also going to reach out to the Gentiles. And fulfilling that prophecy, Jesus does, so we trust him. Now, who are his and who are not his? So Jesus also clarifies in the second point up here, who are his and who are not his? How do we know who belonged to Jesus and who doesn't belong to Jesus? That's an interesting question, because there are a lot of people today that claim to be Christian, 
Christians, I think, in our country, about 100 million people claim to be Christian. That's one-third, or possibly more. But let me tell you, there are nowhere near one-third of the population of the United States are born-again followers of Jesus Christ. How can I say that? Because of these, this passage. This passage tells us how to discern who are his and who are not. Everyone who claims the name of Jesus. Now, Jesus already said this in the Sermon on the Mount. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not done all these things? Haven't we claimed Christian? Haven't we checked a box saying, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus somewhere in my lifetime? Oh, I went to church. Or I gave money. Or I helped people. Or I was good. None of those things make you a follower of Jesus. So the king clarifies, how do we know? And now the disciples are going to have to discern that. When per persecution helps discern, <laughs> if, you're going to, if it's going to cost you your life, you're going to think about whether or not you're going to claim to be a Christian. Now it doesn't cost hardly anything to, to claim that you're a Christian yet. But Jesus says who are his and who are not, and that's the point of many of the, parable, or many of the parables of Matthew 13, which you studied and looked at the seven parables. He is clearly the sovereign uh, Savior in the end of Matthew 12. And if you look at verses 33 and following, a tree is known by its fruit. And if you have awfully corrupt fruit like the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes do, you're going to get this label, you brood of vipers, you pit of snakes. Okay? They claim to be good. Oh, they speak good, but they're evil. And their evil comes from their heart. So he gives them a sign of Jonah and the corruption of Israel at the time of Jesus. Uh, he says that the, the men of Nineveh are going to rise up in judgment against this generation. And the people of uh, the queen of the south, Sheba, is going to rise up in judgment against you guys. And you guys think that you're Jewish and you're fine. And you're not. You are so far from God. And something greater than Jonah's here, something greater than Solomon here is here. And who's that? It's Jesus. They're rejecting him, rejecting him, rejecting John, rejecting his followers, rejecting his miracles, rejecting his claims, rejecting him. And you can't reject him and say that you belong to him at the same time. Okay, and then chapter 13, the, uh, we're not going to have time to look at that, but Jesus is clearly sovereign, so we submit to him. He is clearly our leader in the end of chapter 12, so we follow him. He is our discerning teacher in uh, the parables of chapter 13, so we try to understand what he's trying to teach us. And then verses 54 to 58 of chapter 13, he is our wise savior, so we honor him. The sovereign king in chapters 14 to 16 has challenges. Not that he is challenged himself, but he, people are challenging Jesus. Jesus doesn't have, he's sovereign, right? He doesn't have someone who's going to give him something that's too hard that he can't do. All right, that's not what I'm talking about. Is that he has conflict, okay? And when you realize that this follows a progression, 
When Jesus makes these claims that are messianic and people start rejecting him, rejecting him, rejecting him, you can expect those people that have rejected him to start giving him challenges and to start conflict with him. And they're trying to destroy him, the Bible says. Okay? So from the enemies and the crowds, and we're going to just briefly go over what the enemies and the crowds, how they, how they challenged him. Now, you read this this week, but Herod, if you compared... Herod and Jesus. I think that was our, one of our questions. Uh, we'll see the difference between Herod and Jesus. Herod is weak. Uh, Jesus is not. The crowds want their sick healed, and they want to be fed in chapter 14 and in chapter 15, 29 to 39, but they do glorify God in verse 5, chapter 15, verse 31. If we look there, after Jesus heals uh, many, verse 31 of chapter 15, so that the crowd wondered and they saw the mute speaking and the crippled healthy and the lame walking and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Okay? uh, We'll point out some differences, but they're glorifying God because they think Jesus, but they keep getting Jesus wrong. Okay, look at verse 14 of chapter 16. And they say to his disciples, Jesus says to them, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say that I am? And they said, so the disciples have heard the crowds, they've heard uh, people talking, they probably heard their family and other that aren't followers of Jesus yet. And they say, oh, some say that John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Okay? That's wrong. Okay? Those are great men, but it's not sovereignty. It's not the Messiah. It's lower than what he's claiming. They're getting Jesus wrong. Okay, and when you ask people today who they think Jesus is, as we heard last summer and who Jesus was, when you get Jesus wrong, you're not his follower. Okay, this is helpful for us to see, okay, who are his and who are not. And his, and his enemies and the crowds, they get Jesus wrong. Even though they, try, they, they do glorify God, but they, they're following him to be fed and for the miracles. The religious leaders in chapter 15, the beginning, and chapter 16, the beginning, they, want, they just want um, their extra-biblical rules obeyed, which they also wanted in previous chapters. And they want more proof of Jesus as king. They want to see a sign. And Jesus says, you're an evil and adulterous generation. That's why you want a sign. You're not following the signs that I've given you. I'm not going to give you more. So his enemies and the crowds are challenging Jesus. Then his disciples. The disciples struggle, as we would struggle if we were following Jesus in this time. They struggle to trust King Jesus that he can feed or help them walk on water. In chapter 14, Jesus wanted to build their trust and said, hey, I want you to feed this crowd. And they're like, I don't know how to feed this many people. We don't have this much money. They're in the presence of the sovereign king of the universe. And they don't say, but, but you could probably do it, right? They don't say that. But he's trying to get them to that point where they're thinking, but Jesus, you could do this. And his disciples struggle. And then when they're in the boat, Peter says, if it's you, let me walk on the water. And he walks on the water for a little bit, and then he takes his eyes off of Jesus, begins to sink. The other disciples had had to have been jealous of Peter. Like, aren't you jealous of Peter? You ever been swimming? You're like, man, what are we so cool to walk on water? Oh, yeah. Just one time. See what it feels like. Only Peter, besides Jesus, had this privilege. 
But he struggled to keep his eyes on Jesus, and he began to sink. Struggle to keep annoying Gentiles away. Struggle to keep understand Jesus' simple parables in chapter 15. Despite clear revelation of Jesus' person and plans to them, they try to talk at Peter. Again, tries to talk him out of his mission, which is to go to the cross in chapter 16. And then the disciples and us reading and following him have a difficult command to deny ourselves, die to self, lose our lives for him and expecting by faith that he will reward us. We struggle with this too. All right, so that's our notes. Um, how King Jesus is clarifying and is, has uh, challenges or conflicts. And we're going to go to our notes. And I'm going to have a rule today of only one answer per person. So once you answer, I'm not going to call on you again. So pick your best answer, and that way... 30 or 40 of you can share. Uh, how, how many of you did it? Okay. So uh, all of you that did it, I want, I want to hear one answer. All right. All right. So Matthew 11. All right. Put the questions that we'll answer up here as well. And you have your notebook. Uh, grab the notes for next week uh, if you didn't already. Matthew 11. How is our culture in 2023 like Jesus' warnings of 16, verses 16 to 24? All right. This is the one you want to answer. Anybody? How is it similar? Craig? Okay, so Craig, uh, very quick to see other people's faults, the faults of the church. And uh, someone else want to add anything else? And they won't repent. Okay, good. Good, one more. There's a lot of similarities. All right, Hutch. Okay, so pro calling pride good. Good is called evil, evil is called good. And there's probably other things that we could say, but we're going to have to move on. So second uh, question, um, and I think uh, the second question on Matthew 11 uh, was a personal question, so I'll let you, um, let's take the first part of that. I don't think I have it on the screen here. Yeah, I do. Okay, so what are the humbling truths? I, we won't take how you... I meditate on it. But what are some of the humbling truths of verses 25 to 30 of chapter 11? Heather? Salvation is a gift, right? Another humbling truth from 25 to 30? I'm sorry? We only know the Father through Christ. That is excellent, right? Remember who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to people who think they know the Father and they're trying to bypass Christ. And he's like, no. And he's going to be very clear in John 14. I am the way, <laughs> the truth, and the life. All right, good. Any one, anyone else? One more. Pavla? Okay. 
Yeah, gentle and lowliness. This was his heart, and this was his actions and his life. Great. All right, we're going to keep moving here. Matthew 12. What is Jesus trying to teach his followers and his enemies? In verses 1 to 13. All right, Claire. Right, so God wants us to reflect his character and not just get the law right and sacrifice correctly, but show God's mercy to people. And he's going to go after the Pharisees many times for not displaying this. All right, anything else to add? Lynn? Okay, right. So the rules were to help people, and if people were in dire need, then help people in need. And you treat sheep better than you treat people. Right, so convicting. All right, good. All right, according to verses 34 to 37, how can others tell if we are Jesus' followers? All right, so Matthew 12, 34 to 37. The fruit we bear, right? All right, so I want to take the second question. What fruit is mentioned in verse 50 of Jesus' followers? Of the Father. So when we know the will of the Father, and how do we know the will of the Father? In the Word. We're going to see that this morning as well in the morning message. So we know God's will because we know God's Word. And what we can see from Jesus' teaching is, as he's clarifying things, John the Baptist did the Father's will. The least in the kingdom of heaven is doing the Father's will. It's learning to imitate Jesus, knowing the word, studying the word, obeying the word. And when you and I do the word, imagine you're there and you're following Jesus and you're doing the word and Jesus elevates your status to above his his mother and brothers, his family. And he says, these people who are doing God's will are closer to me in relationship than even my mother or sisters or brothers. That should be really encouraging to you, shouldn't it? You should walk away like, wow, this is pretty, pretty exciting, okay? All right, chapter 13, a lot to talk about in this chapter. Um, someone want to list the seven parables, and some were quite short. Some were longer. All right, someone hasn't answered yet. A lot of you are still looking at your notes, like, hope the teacher doesn't call on me. Look down. Okay, so what are the good and evil in the soils, the wheat and the tares, and the dragnet? Every parable didn't have good and evil, but those three did. What was good? Let's just start with the soils. What was good with the parable of the soils? Someone who has an answer. All right, Brenda. 
The seed is good, right? And of course, what made the soil good? And they, how can we tell that the heart was open? Because of the fruit. 30, 60, 100 fold. If you put a seed in the ground and you go back later and it's just a seed. Oh, no fruit. <laughs> Not good soil. We put the seed in the ground and it starts showing Christ-likeness. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, kindness, faith, meekness, temperance. Then we say, something's happening with that soil. Something's happening with that life. All right, what's uh, good and evil with the wheat and the tares? Someone who hasn't answered yet. What makes the wheat good? Any ideas? What makes the tares bad? One has something and the other doesn't. One has fruit. The other is empty. It's very similar. What Jesus is showing us here, it's going to be obvious. If you were to look at wheat and tares, they grow up together, and then the wheat has a head of grain in it, so it starts bending down. We don't have wheat today. <laughs> we have weeds. But how do we know the difference? They look alike until the wheat starts going down because it has grain in it, and the tares don't have grain, so they stand up. When is the great revelation of the difference? The harvest. When's the harvest? There may be in every Bible-believing church people that look like Christians. And Jesus already warned us in Matthew 7. Now another parable about this. You look like Christians. You talk like Christians. There's no fruit, though, in your life that pleases God. And at the end of the age, you're departing from the Christians who are entering in the pre into the presence of God forever, and you're cast into hell forever. Pretty serious. Pretty sobering. Warning. The dragnet is a similar with uh, not wheat and tares, but with, uh, with um, sh uh, fish. Yeah, couldn't get the word out. All right, with fish. All right, uh, next question then. Why did Jesus teach the crowds in parables according to verses 11 to 15 and 34 to 35? All right. So our hearts are hardened. And when your heart is hard, when your heart is hard in this passage toward Jesus in particular... If you reject Jesus, he is going to confuse you. Does that sound wrong to you? Like, if you reject me, I'm going to start confusing you? You're like, eh, that sounds a little... Uh. <laughs> no, this is right. And this is actually a quote of the Old Testament. Isaiah, again, I believe. That the, the Messiah is going to come, and he is going to intentionally share things with the crowds that most people aren't going to get. They're not going to get it. They're not going to understand. 
And it's like that as we evangelize as well. Don't expect everyone to get it. The gospel seems so clear to us, doesn't it? And have you meditated on the gospel? Like, why doesn't everybody just get this? It seems so simple. And it goes over their head. And here's why. Because it's like you're speaking a parable, and they're sitting there, and they're not getting it. And Jesus said, this is to fulfill what I said. My truth and my followers are going to get things, my discernment, that the crowds aren't going to get. We have to be okay with that. And by faith, we are. And we have to become uh, good with that. Let's keep moving. We're at chapter 14. All right. How was Herod the king a weak man in uh, verses 1 to 12 of chapter 14? Yeah, okay. So murdering shows his weakness. Any other signs of weakness that you see in Herod's life? He's matched up here against Jesus as sovereign kings. Sovereign kings, right, with Herod's not being sovereign, but he's a king. All right, I'm going to start taking seconds. Oh, no. He married his brother's wife. Immorality shows weakness. It's always, it's always weakness. Immorality is foolish weakness. You'll also notice in the text that he was fearful of the crowds. Fearing what people thought. Pilate's going to have the same fear later. But fearing what people think instead of what God thinks causes you to be weak. You'll notice Jesus and eventually his followers are so bold. They don't care what people think. They've got to obey God. All right. Sorry, we didn't catch up to our notes here. And then I'll let you answer that other question, how that is a warning to you about weakness and strength. Okay, so what about the miracles of the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking in the water make you want to worship Jesus? At the end of these two uh, miracles, the disciples are in the boat. (laughs) They're flat on their face, worshiping Jesus. What about those miracles make you, if you were there, as you read, what about them make you want to worship Jesus? Power over creation and nature. Okay. Anyone else? He's God in the flesh, and it's pretty clear. No one else can tell the winds and the waves to stop, and they do. All right, good. You know, the feeding of the 5,000, side note, is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. Okay, I don't know why. I'll just tell you that. So, anyway, side note. All right, moving on. Matthew 15 and 16. I'll let you meditate on that and come up with why you think that's so. Based on Jesus' explanation to Peter of the real problem, why do we sin? Someone who hasn't answered yet. We have a sin nature, okay? Cuppy? We take our eyes off Jesus. 
we doubt God's word. Okay? Barb? We sin because our hearts are sinful. That's what the sin nature and inside of us is sinful. Our hearts like to sin. Just look at the nursery. Look at toddlers. Look in the mirror. The mirror shows you, you like to sin. I like to sin because I'm a sinner. I struggle with sin. And after, after we're born again, we still, ah, and uh, you're in good company with Paul in Romans 7. We sin because we have sinful hearts. I think we have one more question, right? Oh, no, we have a few more. How should we live in light of Jesus' first coming, death and his second coming? We're going to go together and we'll spend the last five minutes of our time in, in Matthew 16, 24 uh, and following. So, how should we live in light of Jesus' first coming, death and his second coming? Someone who has written the answer and you haven't shared yet. I'm sorry? Okay. Away from the world? Yes. Good. Sanctified life? Good. Someone else? Denying yourself, dying to self, following Jesus is very, very, very hard in this world. And I would say, based on what we know of the rest of the New Testament, it's probably impossible without the Holy Spirit. It's impossible to live this way without the Holy Spirit controlling you. How did Jesus live this way? Maybe that would have been a better question than how is this similar to how Jesus lived. How did Jesus live this way? What we've seen so far in Matthew. Did Jesus deny himself? Oh, yeah. And you're probably thinking of many times of Jesus denying himself sleep, food, pleasures, disciples that would listen. <laughs> Uh, all kinds of, uh, and crowds. As soon as he went onto the crowds, people just flocked around him. Just, he could have just stayed in a private place. Yet he was, went out in public often. How did he die to self? How did he take up his cross? Oh, yeah, pretty vivid. And he says, follow me. I want you to do the same thing. Okay, what the world says you should live for, I say, don't live for that. Let's look carefully at Matthew 16, verses 24 and following. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, then let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Why, Jesus? He gives us an answer in verse 25. For whoever would save his life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, not loses his life for 
alcohol or drugs or immorality or anything else or um, driving recklessly in your car and uh, you have an accident, anything like that, no, that's not losing your life for Jesus' sake. But he's encouraging his disciples, the eleven, with this. If you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. Verse 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? Think of the most wealthy people on earth, billionaires, multi, multi-millionaires. This verse comes to mind when I think of them. What does it profit if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? Answer, nothing. Oh, you had pleasure for, like the rich man in Lazarus story, you had pleasure for this wee little bit of time, and you're going to suffer for all eternity. It is not worth it. And then he talks about his kingdom. Jesus will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death. And when you see that in all the Gospels, three of the Gospels, right after that is the transfiguration. He wasn't talking about the second coming. He's likely talking about his transfiguration. So let's pray. Thank the Lord for his word and what we saw of himself today. 